This episode is sponsored by allpublicart.com, which is one of my favorite websites to discover new artists and check out public art around the world. Any artist can join for free. One of the best features of this site is an interactive map showcasing thousands of artwork in public spaces. It's actually a great way to discover inspiring public art in your area. All Public Art is also available for download as a mobile app in the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store. Welcome everyone. On this episode, we have Whitney Lynn. Now Whitney is one of the most versatile artists I know. She actually started out as a classical pianist prior to becoming a well-known artist. She's done teaching gigs at Stanford, UC Berkeley, and the University of Washington. Great to be doing this with you, Whitney, and thank you. Yeah, thank you. So I'd like for you to go way back and share with us what is your earliest memory of drawing or painting? My, my earliest memories are always having uh, pleasure in drawing and painting, but art was this elusive thing. Uh, I never knew any artist and art wasn't something that I kn- knew that, I didn't know you could, you could be an artist. Um, and I think that there was something that also transitioned for me when I uh, went to school at VCU where art wasn't only about drawing and painting, but I was introduced to conceptual art and then everything opened up for me. It was, art could be anything. Art was about ideas uh, and that was really where the excitement was for me, where art wasn't only tied to uh, technical abilities. So did you study art at VCU? I, I went to VCU after I went to the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. So I grew up playing music and that was really my focus and I was in the conservatory for about a year and then realized, well maybe to to be completely candid, I realized that I wasn't as great of a musician as I thought I was. Whitney, what instrument did you play? So I started playing piano when I was five. When you uh, go to a conservatory and you, you know, you're from a small town and you think that you're really good and you're really good for your small town. If you're practicing eight hours a day, someone else is going to practice 12. And so that was also uh, part, part of the shift. But I think one of the things too, um, coming from music, or at least coming from that kind of tradition of classical music, how well can you, like, what is your manual dexterity? How can you uh, recreate these notes that are already written? And I thought that was the same way that you approached art, that it was, you know, how well can you exactly recreate this thing that's there in front of you. And so I think that was also part of the shift in understanding what else art could be and how it could open up, that it, it wasn't about, um, it wasn't necessarily even about your hands, but, uh, but, but about the ideas that are presented. So it's really fascinating what you just shared about art not being about the technical ability, but about the ideas. When did you first have that realization? I don't think I can pinpoint one exact moment. I think it started with just seeing peers that were making works that challenged what I thought I knew art to be. The pieces that they were making that I really didn't understand at all. And I think my confusion made me more curious. And then definitely through taking art history classes and in particular contemporary art history classes and seeing art since 1945 and how things really uh, started to shift and explode. 
and then seeing what was happening in the 60s and 70s and then really being influenced by what was happening in California in the 70s and performance art and uh, both Bay Area artists and also what was happening in LA and that infinite possibilities was, uh, yeah, it just expanded so much and I got really excited about um, what else art, art could be from there. So when did you realize that you were an artist? Uh, it took me a long time to actually call myself an artist or to think of myself as an artist. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I remember specifically resisting saying I was an artist and I think it was an insecurity or, or, or also maybe realizing that it was gonna take some time, I needed to pay some dues and I don't think it was until after grad school. I mean, it wasn't like a, a one day that I said, I'm an artist, but um, there, there was something of, uh, I don't know, it seemed pretentious or something to call myself an artist, that uh, I was too important of a, a job description or, or, or that I hadn't uh, yet achieved that, that place. It was very unique and kind of avant-garde to go to San Francisco and the Conservatory of Music you were breaking with family tradition in many ways. Uh, I'm guessing nobody in your family had done that? No one in my family had pursued the arts as a career, but I was always, uh, I mean, my, my mom was so amazing at taking us to museums anytime we went to a major city, and um, the arts were always valued, but uh, no one had uh, made that leap into making it a career. That's so great. You were branching into new areas. Let's now talk about being in the military and specifically moving around as much as you did. And what I'm particularly interested in is how that has influenced you as an artist. So when I first started making art, uh, the work was really impersonal. It was always political in an embarrassingly didactic way that I look back at the early pieces and <laughs> put them away in the closet again. Uh, but I think coming to San Francisco and I think the Bay Area has a long tradition of artists that have been working from uh, very personal places and injecting that in the work. And all of a sudden there was this realization that the political issues that I was invested in were a direct result of the you know, autobiographical experience. And so I grew up, uh, I was born on a military base. My entire family is in the military from brothers and sisters and my father and aunts and uncles and both grandfathers. And uh, a lot of it was trying to um, process my own relationship to the military, uh, my political positions, and then how that could relate to an audience outside of, you know, my very specific experience and I think that moving around was something that uh, I well I guess everybody's experience like you don't know any different than what than than what your life was I, I loved moving and I still kind of love moving it's a new place it's a new experience like I've been in San Francisco for so long that I was itching to kind of find some other place because I kind of already knew you know, this uh, environment that um, I think it was something that always made me, yeah, trying to seek out uh, new ways of seeing things. And maybe that does relate back to my work 
I might be doing armchair psychologist right now, but I think there is something with my work too that once I become kind of familiar with whether it's a medium or a topic, I'm always itching to go to the next thing. And maybe that is a condition of the military brat where you're always kind of looking to see what's next, what's next. That is really genius. So great, Whitney. Um, I mean, what, what a wonderful way to encapsulate it. Moving around a lot in the military has really informed you as an artist. Um, you know, the same way you were seeking the next new thing, um, you're doing that in art, seeking new inspiration, new ways to express yourself, and even new media. So actually, let's get into that. Um, what exactly is your sequencing? I mean, what happens first? Do you think about a medium and what concept would fit it? Or does a concept come to you and you're like, okay, what's the ideal medium? So my work is really project-based. And so the process shifts depending on the needs of the project. And so sometimes I'm working a lot on the computer. So it'll be a lot of Photoshop or Illustrator work or working with video. And then other times the project will mean that I, I need to be in the studio and getting messy and casting things or making drawings. And then other times I am not, uh, I'm working with fabricators. And so my hand is completely removed from that process, but it's always the intentions of the project or the idea always comes first and then the medium comes next and then how that's going to be made comes last. And I think there's something that I hope with the viewer, there's a question about why it was made and not how, or that how, how is secondary. And if I can provoke questions or generate dialogue, that's when the piece is successful. And so that, that, that process is going to shift, um, yeah, depending on the individual project. So let's get into some of your specific projects. So I have a project that I just uh, finished that's up at the San Diego airport and it's a, a composition that's uh, entirely appropriated digital images and it's I think it's 39 feet long. Wow I mean for starters so great that you got that commission and this is a huge piece. Tell us more about the airport project. Uh, the airport project is uh, this, this collection of, of uh, images of flowers and was thinking a lot about floriography or the language of flowers and how there's uh, symbolic content that can be conveyed uh, through different kinds of floral arrangements. And it's a, a kind of cryptographic communication. And the, the secret that's embedded within it is that all of the flowers have a relationship to countries that are affected by the travel ban. And so it's something that when you initially see the image, it's just flowers. It's just, it's decorative. It's like most airport art. Like you're gonna walk by it and ah, it's maybe pleasing to sit in front of while you're waiting for your flight. But um, I think there was something that has been consistent with a lot of my work is where I'm really interested in how the exact same image can radically shift depending on one's perspective and how an image can be read in multiple ways. And I think with looking at this history of how flowers uh, com communicate uh, different kinds of symbolic meaning from uh, uh, 
you know, uh, uh, how it's been depicted in, tur in Turkey to uh, English Victorians, um, uh, to the Dutch and Flemish still life paintings, uh, that there's so much content embedded in something that seems like it's purely decorative. I love that concept. What a great inventive way to approach and uh, broach this uh, subject matter. And I'm so glad you got into the meaning of flowers for you because I wanted to ask about that. And um, you have another instance where you used uh, flowers in your work. Share about that, please. Yeah, so the, the memorial building project uh, started, I was approached by the San Francisco Arts Commission to uh, do a project that was site specific and uh, they wanted me to also uh, uh, be in collaboration with veterans groups that are in the building. And uh, so I, I met with different veterans groups in the War Memorial Building and then also I just started spending some time there and I walked up the staircase and there were all of these stained glass windows that were glorifications of war and then also uh, one is a glorification of the atomic bomb uh, there's a depiction of the Spanish-American War that's an image of a, a naked woman on her knees, her arms outstretched, uh, you know, subjugated in front of these two armed soldiers, and just these images that you couldn't even imagine, uh, you know, being in a San Francisco uh, building. And so the, the project there was a, a direct response to these problematic uh, stained glass windows that are already part of the building and they had an empty alcove and so it was a proposal for a new window and that it was one that was uh, memorializing uh, not only uh, soldiers that have lost their life in war but also the civilian impact of war and so it's this overflowing bouquet of flowers of all of the different nations that have uh, been sites of uh, US military operations although it's an incomplete representation because not every country has a floral emblem. And, and so there's this absurdity too of how many different nations have, have been affected. I know I keep using superlatives, but I, I do love this concept. Where did the inspiration come from? So a lot of looking at that piece was looking at those Dutch and Flemish still life paintings and how those paintings uh, told these different kinds of narratives, but they also reflect a history of colonization and how those flowers were brought back from these various countries and there's these fantasy bouquets that never could have existed except in the imagination of these painters and so looking at the political implications of these paintings that are easy to dismiss that I dismissed when I was looking at them as a young art student it's like oh, flower paintings like why do I care and then instead trying to see you know how much content is embedded in those images it really feels like you are making political commentary and at some point that switched to social commentary and i'm just thinking about how you have a hell's angels project and then the uh the muscle beach in venice mural that's in your studio um, but to take it back um, share with us how your political commentary came from being associated or being exposed to the military were there specific ideas that you were after with your political commentary one thing I hope is, I hope I'm not making political commentary. I hope that I can point to things and share the questions that I have, but I don't want to make a, a, 
direct statement about how to look at things. And I think that whether some works have a very direct political relationship. So if we're looking at things that are related to the military, obviously we can see that relationship to politics. But I think also looking at a larger understanding of like the political and its relationships to power. And uh, when I'm looking at uh, things that are in the social landscape, it's also looking at relationships of, of power. Um, and maybe that's really underlying all of my interest in images. And uh, also, I think uh, aspects of myth and aspects of um, illusion are probably mixed in there with, with all the different works. Would you say then that your role is not so much in critiquing, but in shining a floodlight? The works that I'm most interested in or excited to look at it through art history are the ones that mirror that moment in time. And I think that I hope that my works are also mirroring a moment in time. And so I, you know, personally, of course, have my own opinions about things and, and I have my own critiques of things, but I hope that the work is, yeah, just reflecting or uh, mirroring or um, shining a light, highlighting uh, these these various elements, and then there's a way that that can create more questions. Yes, and I think a great example of that is um, comes from your two projects, uh, Girls, 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 and Signs. It feels like you're calling out society, or, or us, or even calling humanity out on its past behavior. You are highlighting what we did wrong before, right? Um, is that the right way to capture it? And then are you hoping in doing that you're going to have people rethink their behavior today? Spe specifically with the drawings that came out of the Neon Museum residency and our remakes of old master and post-impressionist uh, paintings, it was looking at those narratives that limit uh, women's power uh, through uh, their sexuality um, and uh, positioning women as you know the temptress or femme fatale and then also how easy it is to gloss over those narratives when they're depicted in these lush oil paintings. So you wanted to take them out of that setting that glosses over these issues and kind of bring it to its uh, substantive skeletal form that highlights the errant behavior and thinking. Translating those paintings into these crude drawings that ultimately would be conveyed in neon, then all of a sudden it swings that the narrative is highlighted. You know, there's these different kinds of questions, but it's also these poles of extremes from one where a woman is limited by her sexuality, puts her in a, a position of being suspect, to a complete objectification. And then I think being in Las Vegas, it also you know, seeing these uh, signs for, you know, whether it's strip clubs or, or even, you know, celebrities that are coming to town, like that, that other problem of uh, when, a, when a woman's sexuality becomes the only thing that they are. So I think it's trying to look at those, yeah, the, 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 the poles of, of those narratives. And then my own kind of questions of, you know, where I fall in between of like how I understand uh, those relationships. 
there certainly is this idea of attraction repulsion uh, within that concept. Um, when, when you've talked about some of your neon work, there was this concept, this notion of how they function as signs and signs as lures, which of course is what sirens were. Uh, mythologically, we hear that they were the ones who were calling out to sailors and that the sailors would meet their death because of the distraction. Um, but I just wanted you to chat a bit uh, more about this concept of the neon signs and how they can be luring. So I had done these pieces that were uh, traps and thinking about the metaphorical implication of the trap and then a lure as a type of trap that it operates either through desire or uh, obliviousness, but either way it was uh, a misinterpretation. And when I initially went out to Vegas for the Neon Museum residency, I thought that I was going to make works that were text-based or I had these kind of preconceived notions. And then once I was there, I really started thinking a lot about a city that is allure, like the city of Vegas as being uh, you know, alluring in, in various ways, and then once you're there, you're kind of trapped within it. Uh, but then also looking at these uh, these signs that 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 pull you in through some kind of moth-like desire. I really like how you describe Vegas, by the way. I I think a lot of what I'm interested in with the lures, or the traps, or the decoys, is the relationship to sight and vision, though, and thinking you understand something and then it pulls the rug and you realize that you've you've been trapped in your own belief and your belief in your own understanding and those problems of perception is that theme of uh, being trapped in your own understanding in some of your other work the patch project came out of uh, talking to my sister who uh, told me about morale patches, which are uh, these unofficial patches that, uh, particularly during deployments, can help boost group morale. Uh, a lot of them are very sexual or violent or violently sexual, and it still becomes about this kind of group dynamic. And I think with the secret patches, I'm trying to encourage this, yeah, this personal private um, this uh, th things that you wouldn't necessarily tell the things that, that you wouldn't necessarily share with the group um, there's a subversive aspect to it where it's also there's these official emblems and then underneath there's the person and I think part of it is the uniform can start to obscure that these are all individuals who all joined for many different reasons. And then some of it too is trying to allow uh, different service members who might have opinions that are different from the collective. And I think it's something that all of us face, whatever kinds of groups that we're within, there's things that are, are private or personal or secret that we feel are okay to share or not. And so it is um, this way of, of allowing uh, 
talk about the individual and not the group and not like the larger entity of the military and instead like who are these individuals that that find themselves within the military that's really profound because military structure is all about the group um, every act they engage in is almost to take away that sense of individuality the marching in step the chanting the uniforms the titles and we see why it's necessary. I mean, you can't wage war when everyone is celebrating their individuality. So I think it's really brilliant that you give them an opportunity to do that. I mean, I've been really uh, pleasantly surprised by the variety of responses that I've received. So from uh, someone uh, wanting to represent their hometown to someone that uh, is making a memorial for a loved one to someone that uh, wanted a, a gun control patch because they really felt restricted in being able to express their political ideas that are not conservative. Uh, somebody else um, who wanted a, a patch to represent his queer identity. And so I think that the more responses I get, the the better the project's going to be because it is going to reflect um, all of these uh, individuals. That's great. Um, let's talk about your large gauze-covered limbs. These limbs that um, were fallen off of, of statues. And it actually started, I saw this, this Christie's auction where they were just selling limbs from uh, different pieces. And then also, I think living in the South, uh, of course, having, you know, being confronted by these uh, Confederate statues. And I think going to school in Richmond, Virginia, equally a part of my education, as much as what I got from VCU, was also that, that confrontation of um, those statues in public space and the, and the problem of those uh, uh, images that just infect the entire uh, city. And so I was making these drawings and then putting casts on them, and then making patriotic images, patriotic tattoo-like images over them, and the kind of absurdity of uh, trying to fix an image that's beyond being repaired. And so the uh, sculpture versions of them are these uh, casts of limbs with these other casts on top of them, but they're just these really abject objects that uh, have no hope of, of being recovered. So the gauze is meant to represent some kind of a healing or a fixing? So it's a, so it's a, it's a, they're casts of limbs and then there's an actual cast with medical gauze over the top of it and then it is this representation of trying to fix this broken thing but then of course you know it's, it's already disembodied there's no way for it to be fixed. Switching gears a little bit, is teaching an important part of who Whitney Lynn is? I've been teaching for a little over a decade now, which I just realized the other day and was a little shocking. But uh, teaching is something that really feeds my work in the studio. It forces me to not only you know stay current with what's going on with art, or if I'm giving a lecture, you know I'm being reminded of things that I maybe wouldn't have revisited, uh, but also participating in critiques. It's you know sharpening uh, my perspectives and opinions, and also challenges. If students are coming up with things that are uh, 
beyond how what I've been currently considering. So it's something that there's really a, a kind of back and forth relationship of um, what I'm what I'm doing as an artist comes back into the room, and then what's happening through teaching filters back into my work. Whitney, share with us some of your challenges of uh, being an artist. There's there's always peaks and valleys being an artist, and I think that it's something where you have to f not look for outside validation for the work that you're doing. That there, there's, there's going to be times when you're getting a lot of attention, and then there's going to be other times when you know, you're, you're waiting for that email, or no one really calls on the phone, but <laughs> maybe that phone call. Um, I think that there's my lowest place as an artist probably comes like once a week when I'm questioning, you know, what I'm doing. Uh, but let me think of a better way to answer this. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there is like a lowest. Um, I, I'm always questioning what I'm doing. That after I finish anything, I'm always questioning whether or not this is something that I want to put out into the world. And I think with time, there becomes, you, I gained a confidence in being able to know like when I can evaluate things, but there's always that, that difficulty of knowing if um, what was produced is, is worthy of anybody else you know, looking at it. Um, is it too simple of an idea? Is it too convoluted? Have you already said this before? Has somebody else already said this before? But I think it's really important to not, um, when, once, once that decision has been made of, yeah, this is, this is worth you know, pursuing, then to, to trust it. And then eventually it might find its audience. But I think there's always too, like there's, there's different audiences for different works. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I don't think I don't think I have like one. Which is okay. Yeah, I don't think I have like one low moment. Like it is like this constant spiral <laughs> of going like, all right, I know what I'm doing, and then going, I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, I would say that you certainly do know what you are doing. Thank you so very much, Whitney. Really appreciate your time. That's all right. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.